some peace out of that reading. Well, we're beginning uh, really part two of a, a large long-term series of foundations where we, we're going through the books of Genesis and Exodus. Uh, these two books uh, really kind of are the foundational stories for the rest of the Old Testament and the rest of the, the Scriptures. Uh, but we're up to, uh, as we can see, obviously, uh, the book of Exodus, and we're going to spend the next uh, eight or so weeks going through the first half of this book. As we explore Exodus, we should be prepared to have our understanding of the story reoriented. Uh, because I think, like many biblical stories and characters, there's kind of a popular mythology that has grown up around the story. It would be fair to say that probably many people know the Exodus story not from actually reading it in the Bible but from the storybooks, the Sunday school lessons, uh, the movies and TV shows. There's been a bit of an evolution in Moses' movies over the 20th century which I think is quite telling. The best known of these movies is Cecil B. DeMille's 1956 The Ten Commandments. Uh, kind of, that's the classic epic biblical movie. And in that movie, uh, it's been a while since I've seen it, but he, he sticks fairly closely to the original script, the actual book of Exodus. Uh, there is a little bit of artistic licence which you need when you're making a movie. But that movie was made for a generation who largely considered Exodus to be a true story. It was a retelling of historical events. Uh, He was criticised a bit by some uh, Christian groups for the uh, little bit of artistic license that he did use um, and also he used some other ancient Jewish sources to... to, um, to add to that story. But largely it was presented as this is something that actually happened and uh, he actually saw it as a way to call particularly America back to the importance of the Ten Commandments as a way of, um, of defining our law and our morality. In 1998, probably the second best known Moses movie is the Prince of Egypt, the animated movie and that reintroduced the story to uh, another generation. However, by then popular views of Exodus were beginning to shift. Fewer people believe it to actually be a true story and Steven Spielberg who made the movie himself is a Jew at least ethnically, he took a lot more artistic liberties and in fact he made the main point of the movie Believe in Yourself. The the famous song from that movie is You Can Do Miracles If You Believe. So it was very much geared towards that um, generation who just saw it as a, a helpful myth or fable. The latest Iteration is Exodus Gods and Kings. I don't know if anyone's seen it. 
he completely butchers the biblical story. Um, Moses has visions of God appearing to him as a child and he has the visions after he's had a knock on the head. And so much of the story has changed that it's hardly even recognisable as the biblical Exodus story. But see, today that's considered okay because Exodus now has been relegated to the same level as a fairy tale. And a fairy tale can be adapted and changed however we want because in the end it doesn't matter because we're not rewriting history. So as this this shift in the public's perception of Exodus has happened, possibly too, Christians who haven't actually been studying the Bible uh, can have their perceptions of the story changed as well. And that's why it's so important for us to keep revisiting the story to, uh, to make sure we know the original story, not these later adaptations. The other effect that these retellings of biblical stories uh, can do is to isolate them from the, the whole story of the Bible. And particularly, it can isolate them from their fulfilment in Jesus. So, not only do we need to strip away the extra biblical mythology around the story, but uh, we also need to see the story in the light of Christ, who gives them their true, its true meaning. When, uh, when Peter, James and John were on the mountaintop with Jesus and they saw him transfigured before their eyes to be as bright as the sun, Luke tells us that, behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. The word for departure here in the Greek is literally exodus. Uh, Jesus is talking with Moses and Elijah. Moses represents the law and Elijah represents the prophets. Jesus has come to fulfil the law and the prophets. For each of these men, Moses and Elijah, both had their own exodus which prefigured Jesus' death and resurrection. For Moses, as we know, it was the redemption from slavery into freedom, prefiguring the cross. For Elijah, Elijah experienced an exodus, didn't he? Elijah was taken up into heaven. He departed from this world uh, with chariots of fire and that prefigures Jesus' ascension up to the right hand of the Father. So this book is is a historical story of events that happened over 3,000 years ago but it's also a book that points us clearly and unequivocally to Jesus. We saw recently, didn't we, in the series through Matthew's Gospel that Jesus is the new and better Moses. Jesus deliberately re-enacted some of the events of the book of Exodus to clearly communicate to that uh, us, uh, to communicate that to us. 
So as we, as we journey through the story of Moses and the Exodus, beginning with uh, his birth, these parallels will become clearer for us. At every stage in the story, we will see Jesus. And it begins with this account of Moses' birth. For some reason this remote is not working properly. I think that's the right point. So often in the scriptures, where, where there's a, an announcement of the birth of a child, it's a prelude to a significant saving act of God. It's, it's a milestone in the unfolding of his plan. What was the promise given to Eve in the midst of the curse on the serpent? It was that one of her descendants would crush the devil, his head, and undo his work. And that's why those genealogies in the Old Testament are so important. These genealogies, they're not like uh, our normal family trees that we uh, compose today, where we show all of the branches as all of the descendants with each generation get larger and larger. The biblical genealogies follow a single line of descent. Adam to Noah, Noah to Abraham, Abraham to Jacob. And all through these genealogies we see people in the line because of God's choice. So Seth, the son of Adam, is chosen, not Cain. Shem, the son of Noah, not Ham or Japheth. Isaac, the son of Abraham, not Ishmael. Jacob, the son of Isaac, not Esau. That's what Romans 9.11 calls God's purpose of election. It's designed to communicate that his plan is accomplished not by our works, but because of his works, of him who calls. And so as this, this single line unfolds, the promise made to Eve comes closer to its fulfilment. But more than this, sometimes the, the birth of these children is surrounded by the miraculous. Either their birth is miraculous They may be born to a woman who's previously been unable to conceive or is past childbearing age. Or there's a deadly threat to the child from which the child is saved. These events show that a significant milestone is about to be reached. So if you think again of the story in Genesis, the birth of Isaac to Sarah who couldn't have children, marked the beginning of the unfolding of the promises made to Abraham. If you think later in the Bible, the birth of Samuel, again to a woman who was unable to have children until the Lord intervened. It's a prelude to 
the establishment of the kingship and the, uh, the Davidic king which uh, leads to Jesus. And so here we see the same thing happening. The rescue of this baby Moses is it's like a heads up from God. He's saying, I'm about to do something new. Keep an eye on this child because I am going to use him for something significant. You're probably familiar with Isaiah 7:14. Behold, the virgin will conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. We often hear that around Christmas time, don't we? But see here, we see that principle. The Lord will give you a sign. The sign will be the child. It's the sign that the Lord is coming to make his dwelling with his people. In the counts of Jesus' birth, we see both, don't we? We see a miraculous birth and we see him being rescued from uh, a, a great a danger, a great evil. And so bringing those two together is saying this child is not just prefiguring a future mighty act of salvation. In this child, salvation has actually come. But there's, there's even more. Did you notice Exodus 1 verse 7 and how similar it sounded to Genesis 1.28 God blessed them and God said to them be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Part of the promise to Abraham was that his descendants would be as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore and Uh, that through this multitude would come blessing from God to every nation. So this fruitfulness of Israel in Egypt was a sign of this blessing of God. And at this point the genealogy does branch out through the twelve sons of Jacob. It branches out into this great family tree and they they filled the land of Egypt. Uh, the word that's used there is they became a great swarm. It's like a small scale picture of God's design for humanity filling the earth. So, Moses is a picture of Jesus, but Israel in this story is like a picture of humanity what the Lord does through Moses to redeem the Israelites is designed to foreshadow what he will do in Jesus to redeem people of all nations. Now, scholars have debated over the years about which of the pharaohs this was. In fact, there are two pharaohs that feature in Exodus, as we'll find out tomorrow, uh, next week. So, archaeologists, historians have uh, have debated this. They've debated the exact dating of the events. 
Pharaoh isn't a name. Pharaoh is a title. It means emperor or king. But they haven't been able to pin it down. There's there's a couple of good uh, possible theories. They haven't been able to pin it down because this Pharaoh is never named in the book. But did you notice who was named apart from Moses? These two Hebrew midwives, Shifra and Pua. We may never know for sure the identity of the Pharaoh. We may never know his name. He ruled over what's considered one of the greatest civilizations of human history. But God has determined that rather than us knowing his name, for 3,000 years every generation has known the names of these two women. So the writer of Exodus here, he's setting the scene for us. He's painting a picture for how God works. Psalm 138.6 says, For though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly, but the haughty he knows from afar. Psalm 113, Who is like the Lord our God who is seated on high, who looks far down on the heavens and the earth? He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes, with the princes of his people. He gives the barren woman a home, making her the joyous mother of children. Praise the Lord. This is what we saw in Jesus' teaching. The greatest in the kingdom of God is the one who is like a little child. Jesus said that he identifies with the least of these, whom he calls his brothers and sisters. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Next week we will see this beautiful statement in chapter 2, verse 25. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. This is the, one of the key themes behind Exodus. The Lord sees and the Lord knows those who are at the absolute lowest level. He sets his love and his favour upon them in grace, not based on who they are or how great they might be in the world, but based on who he is and his faithfulness to his word and his promise. Recently I was uh, told about a church here in Adelaide, I won't name it, which has a a very ambitious vision. Uh, They call it their manifesto. Uh, It includes statements such as, We are an expansive church with explosive energy, a church whose rapid growth cannot be contained by buildings, explained by reason or restrained by location. We are an innovative church with a creative soul, 
a church that reaches our culture through compelling art, cutting-edge media and an entrepreneurial mindset. We are an influential church with a presence that is felt, a church whose influence is a tangible reality in our cities, nations and world. We are a unified church with a single vision, a church whose unbreakable unity attracts the favour of God in an unprecedented measure. We're hearing that word unprecedented a lot, aren't we? I think, I really think the only thing that's unprecedented about 2020 is the wide use of the word unprecedented. But what a vision for a church to have. It's a vision that actually says we want to be great in the world. They say that because of who we are and what we do, we attract the favour of God. But does, does the favour of God come to us because of our audacious vision, our entrepreneurial mindset, our unbreakable unity? The Old Testament word favour is the equivalent of the New Testament word grace. Grace or favour isn't something we can attract by what we do or what we achieve. Grace is always given. If it's not given unconditionally, then it's not actually grace. It's given to those who don't deserve it. It's given to those who have nothing in themselves to offer up to God, nothing to hold up as their accomplishment. To say that we can attract the favour of God is actually to say that we can manipulate him, that we can cause him to give us what we want because he's obligated in some way to respond to us. The only thing that we can point to in these midwives is that they feared God. What does it mean to fear God? This word fear, it literally means fear. It can't be dumbed down to just mean respect or reverence. It's the natural approach, the natural response of a creature made out of dust who comes face to face with their eternal, almighty, holy creator and ruler. The one who has the power to snuff us out with just a word. The one on whom we must depend on for every breath. The one who determines when we're born and when we die. The one before whom we are, as James says, a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. To fear God is actually to put aside our entrepreneurial mindset, to put aside our explosive energy and to recognise that we can only know God's favour by unconditional grace. So for Shifra and Pua, this meant that they knew the Lord to be sovereign even over Pharaoh. Rather than live in fear of a mere man who had exalted himself as ruler over an empire and who wanted to kill and enslave them and their children, they feared the God of the universe, who not only had infinitely great 
greater power than Pharaoh, but he's also gracious and patient and full of steadfast love and faithfulness. This is the framework that we need to have when we approach the problem of suffering and evil, which comes up very clearly in this book. The God who is supremely sovereign over all things is the God who hears and sees. He's the God who makes note of the names of his people. This God, his absolute sovereignty means two things. Firstly, it means that no degree of evil and no depth of suffering will ever be too great for him to handle. Nothing can cause him to say, this is too much, it's gone too far, I'm, I'm, una- I'm unable now to do anything about it, or I'm unable to bring any good out of it. Secondly, his sovereignty means God is big enough to be able to not only allow suffering, but even to send suffering and hardship and determine that its outcome will always be for good. Remember, in our journey through Genesis, we heard Joseph's words towards the end to his brothers who had sold him into slavery. Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. See how this knowledge of God's sovereignty enables Joseph not only to be at peace himself with all that he had personally gone through, but it frees him up to show love and comfort and kindness to the very people who had been his enemies and had wanted him dead. We also saw in Genesis that one of the key purposes of Genesis is to show not just how the Israelites ended up in Egypt, but that it was actually the Lord himself who sent them there in preparation for this great act of redemption that he's about to perform. This this act that would define the identity of the Jewish people forever. And this event will be the greatest foreshadowing of the greatest act of redemption in history in Jesus Christ. Jesus' ministry particularly as great high priest displays this perfect unity of God's sovereignty but also his close personal presence. We're told in Hebrews 4.15 we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathise with our weaknesses but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Jesus is the God who has entered right into our human experience and understands not just our humanity but all of the battles of living as a human being in this world of sin and suffering and death. But at the same time, 
He is the sovereign Lord who in his perfect holiness has the capacity to actually accomplish salvation. Hebrews 7.26 For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. So we'll see in Exodus, as we see clearly in Jesus, the God who is both powerfully sovereign over all suffering and compassionately present with us in suffering. But we'll also see the God who includes this suffering in his sovereign plan, ultimately so that his own glory and grace may be displayed not just to his own people, but to the nations. We'll see a bit uh, in a couple of weeks when we get to chapter 6. I will take you to be my people and I will be your God and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And then in chapter 7, the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. So all of this, this is what we are called to see through this sign of the birth and the rescue of this baby who came to be known as Moses. Moses is put into a a basket or box Uh, Literally, it's an ark. And we're supposed to recall Noah here. Noah was also saved from a watery death. He was in an ark and was covered in bitumen and pitch. Noah and his family were like the prototype Israel. They were rescued through God's terrible judgments from an evil generation. And so now Moses continues this imagery. And just as Pharaoh's daughter drew him out of the water, and that's why she called him Moses, so the Lord will use him to draw his people out of Egypt, out of the judgment that he's to bring. Do you see the the beautiful irony in this story, which shows this sovereign yet personally close character of God. The nations and the kings of the earth are raging against God and they think that they can undo his plans. Pharaoh thinks he can just solve this problem with his quick solution of genocide. But Psalm 2.4 says, He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. So the Lord takes a child who represents those whom Pharaoh wants dead, a healthy male. Not only does he keep him safe, but then he inserts that child right into Pharaoh's own household. But not before making sure that he actually ends up back in the arms of his own mother. And now the mother of Moses is actually paid to make sure that 
Moses is kept safe. She actually defies her own father's orders. Can you hear the Lord laughing in heaven? He uses men's evil plans to bring about his own and he uses the most unlikely means. The key instrument in this, in the, uh, the bringing of Moses to, back to his mother and then back into the household of Pharaoh, as we should expect, is this Hebrew slave girl, Moses' sister. She probably had heard about the courage of the Hebrew midwives in defying Pharaoh because they feared the Lord. And so she had the courage to do the unthinkable. She directly approaches the princess. A slave girl would have no right to just boldly walk up to royalty. And then, not only does she have the audacity to walk up to Pharaoh's daughter, she gives advice and direction as to what should be done for this baby. She's fearing the Lord. Tradition tells us that she was only seven at the time. She is a picture for us of the little ones who through a humble fear of the Lord is great in the kingdom of God. And it's no accident that uh, All of these women feature prominently in this opening story of Exodus. As we know in ancient cultures, women weren't given much prominence or authority. But we see in this opening chapter, we actually see the men taking the back seat as the Lord takes what the world would have seen as lowly and insignificant and makes them great in his kingdom. If you're you're ever tempted to think that the Bible is patriarchal, remember this, women played a crucial role in making sure that the greatest story in history would unfold according to God's plan. So these, these women, uh, Shifra and Puah and Miriam, the mother of Moses, even Pharaoh's daughter, they stand in that great line that began with Eve and the promise to Eve and which would culminate with Mary, the mother of Jesus. Now, I'd originally plan to preach uh, on highlights from Exodus in this series Uh, and originally the passage I'd chosen for this first sermon didn't include all of those details but in reviewing it I thought that we need to read, we need to hear the full story. Every detail of Exodus as we've seen this morning is there for a reason. It has something to say to us. Who would have thought that a 3,000 plus year old story would still be speaking to us today? Well, it does because it is 
God's story, the story of his salvation. It's a story that's been fulfilled in Christ. It's the story that is culminated in the living, risen Christ who walks among us today, the Christ who is still speaking to us through these words. Let's pray.